Arkansas Row Crops Radio, providing up-to-date information and timely recommendations on row crop production in Arkansas. Hello and welcome to the Weeds Are Wild podcast series as part of Arkansas Row Crops Radio. My name is Tom Barber and I'm an extension weed scientist with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode. This is episode 20. Uh, this is the first year for our weekly weed control updates uh, through the podcast format, and, and, and we've had a lot of positive feedback so far on, the, on these updates and on these podcasts, so we want to thank everybody uh, for that feedback, and we want to encourage you to continue to listen. Uh, I know recently we have uh, backed this podcast up to every two weeks instead of every week, uh, just because there's just not quite as much going on. Uh, from a weed control standpoint at this time in the season, we've either uh, done a good job or, or we're just making a bunch of revenge sprays that uh, really won't amount to, to much of anything. So uh, we want to thank you for continuing to tune in. Um, first, I want to provide an update on what we're seeing and hearing uh, out there across the state in regards to the dicamba drift issues that have seemed to significantly increase in Arkansas over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so two weeks ago, my counterpart and extension weed specialist, Dr. Tommy Butts, reported over 200,000 acres that had been injured by dicamba off-target movement. Uh, however, over the last two weeks, that number has increased exponentially, uh, unfortunately. And we believe at this time, there's more than 650,000 acres affected in Arkansas. And that's, again, from dicamba off-target movement. Uh, 400,000 of those acres that are injured uh, are coming from five Arkansas counties. Those counties are Arkansas, Prairie, Poinsett, Cross, and St. Francis. These estimates are based on personal field visits, as well as discussions and surveys with county agents, crop consultants, and soybean growers in the areas. Uh, this number could continue to increase because many times, especially with uh, the lower rate of off-target movement dicamba, we can see 14 to 21 days before the full symptoms uh, appear on soybean from that dicamba off-target movement. Uh, the U of A Division of Ag official soybean variety tests have also been affected, and they've been affected on every research station uh, in eastern Arkansas. And this is the first year that we've had an issue with dicamba uh, at Pine Tree, Stuckhart, or Newport locations. And in general, this is the first year uh, since the release of the technology or at least the approval of, of applied dicamba formulations or registration of those formulations. Uh, this is the first year since then uh, that we've seen this amount of acres uh, damaged or affected by dicamba uh, in our Arkansas counties west of Crowley's Ridge. And so uh, it's definitely something a lot of these growers haven't, haven't seen before. So some most common questions that we're getting out there from the field, of course, number one, where did it come from? I mean, in some of these situations and fields that we've visited and, and visited with uh, agents and crop consultants, uh, they may have, they were several miles away from any near dicamba applications. And so when you look at the symptomology, uh, especially in Arkansas County, these counties I mentioned earlier that have so many acres affected, Arkansas Prairie Poinsett Cross, uh, St. Francis, when you go and you look at those uh, beans that are not extend or do not contain the dicamba trait, 
for the most part, it is an even symptomology across the whole field from one corner of the field to the other. There's not a gradient that, that appears to be from high dicamba rate to a low dicamba rate. It just looks like the same rate over a lot of acres. And in general, uh, my uh, previous or experience as a weed, weed scientist, cotton specialist over the years, and I guess I've had uh, almost 20 years of experience doing this. I mean, that's usually any symptomology you see like that is coming generally from secondary movement. Uh, we know secondary movement can uh, occur when we make applications in into temperature inversions. And in the case of dicamba, uh, a product that is highly volatile, secondary movement can come from uh, volatility as well. And so, you know, that appears to be where the majority uh, of this movement is, or of this uh, injury is coming from uh, secondary movement. Now, I'm not saying, you know, obviously we've been to fields where the application was made across the road and you can see uh, that that application was the one, or at least part of the, the damage that we were seeing uh, in the non-extend field. Um, all right, so what do we do now? That's the next question. What do we do now? What do I do with my beans that have been affected? And, and there is nothing that we have found and actually, Missouri uh, just released a new study on this over a, a three-site year type study uh, that can improve your situation as far as something we can spray out of the bottle or spray out of the jug. Um, there's nothing we can apply that is going to turn the symptomology around. Uh, when we look at side-by-side -side plots, there's just nothing we can spray uh, that's going to impact our yield uh, as far as you know, recovering from that dicamba drift. However, one thing we've got to do is we've got to continue to farm the beans and reduce the stress load on those soybeans that are affected. And the best way to do that is continue to irrigate them if it's dry, uh, you know, remove any other stresses, pest management type stresses that, that are in the field. And we've got to keep these beans growing and, and uh, reduce the competition with other factors. So uh, continue to farm the beans, don't bank on buying anything that's gonna completely reverse the situation. Just continue to irrigate and manage the soybeans. Of course, everybody wants to know what potential yield loss they have. And this is a, a question that nobody's gonna be able to answer. You know, we can provide some information. We have a lot of data uh, now that, that shows that the biggest chance for getting a, a yield decrease or having a negative yield effect from dicamba off-target movement is if that of soybean field has been hit or affected uh, around the bloom stage. So R1, R2 through R3, uh, those seem to be the most sensitive stages where we can take a, a significant yield decrease uh, from dicamba off-target movement. And then it goes back to the rate and how many times the field has been affected. If the field has been affected multiple times uh, during this sensitive stages, then um, you know, we're probably, we're likely looking at a slight yield loss uh, anyway. It may not be a lot, but it might be a little bit. Uh, and it's just all across the board. We have seen yield loss uh, with one one thousandth of a field rate of dicamba at R1. And so that bloom stage is a critical stage uh, where we can see the largest yield decrease, I guess, uh, from off-target movement of dicamba. And again, we just need to keep managing the beans and, and hopefully these rates are not very high and it's gonna be situationally dependent. Every field's gonna be different uh, for the most part. 
Uh, the next question I get a lot is, does this off-target movement of dicamba hurt rice during the rice-sensitive growth stages? And uh, we have also done some work on this. Uh, my counterpart, Dr. Jason Norsworthy, uh, and one of his students published uh, some of this work in uh, the B.R. Wells publication that you can find online on our website. Uh, and basically what it says is that it takes a higher rate to affect rice, a very a, a significantly higher rate. So the rate that it takes to affect rice would most likely uh, kill the soybeans in a lot of instances. And so uh, because the soybeans are, you know, in most of these cases are not uh, dead or the terminals have, have not turned to the ground in a lot of cases, you know, we don't believe that uh, the rates that are affecting these beans are enough to affect rice uh, at this time. And again, we have some of that data and you can, you can look it up uh, in the BR Wells publications. And so I think that's all I'm gonna talk about the dicamba situation. Again, it is a, it is a fluid type situation in that uh, we have passed the cutoff date of June 30th for applications. And so we should start to see the, you know, the, the maybe not numbers decrease is the right way, right way to put that, but I don't know how much more uh, acres affected we're going to see uh, past the cutoff date. And so, uh, you know, hopefully everybody stops spraying at the cutoff date and, and we limit the, the injury to what we have at this time. Uh, the other things I want to talk about in the podcast today, uh, just some updates on some research that we're doing. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the seed destructor. And uh, as many of you know, we uh, started working with an integrated Harrington seed destructor system about four years ago. We put it in a an uh, older Class 7 John Deere combine. It took a lot of engineering uh, to get the system to, to mount to the combine and, and work. And then when we tried to use it in the fall and beans, there was just too much green material and that lower chaff fraction uh, for that one mill to handle. It was a single mill uh, system in the back. And so the, the mill continued to clog up with any of that green material. Now, after a killing frost, we were able to harvest fine with that one mill system, but we know that most of our beans are harvested in Arkansas and the Mid-South uh, prior to a killing frost. And so we knew we needed to try a different system. Uh, fortunately, last year, uh, we were able to uh, work with a company out of Canada and uh, acquire a different seed destructor. And this one's called the Redicop seed destructor. And so uh, we also updated our combine to an S680. So a class eight combine, a little newer model than what we had. And uh, this Redicop dual mill seed destructor is, is made to hook up to those S series combines basically. And so, um, it, it attached easily with not near as much modification as it took uh, with our other, the Harrington Seed Destructor. Um, it is a dual mill system. To me, it fits a little cleaner up against the combine so that lower chaff fraction and the upper chaff fraction separate better. Uh, so we don't get a lot of the stems uh, and larger uh, plant material uh, down in that lower chaff fraction trying to go into the mill. And, and causing clogs. So it's a, it's a cleaner system. Uh, to me, it just, uh, it, the flow, the airflow is a lot better uh, through those mills. And, and we were actually able at the end of last year or the end of the fall uh, to, to cut some, to harvest some soybeans with it, with some green material and it worked great. And then just recently 
two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago now, we harvested wheat with that system. And we let a lot of weeds go in the wheat just to see how good uh, we could do. And to be honest, I, I was very pessimistic uh, at the beginning when we started, but uh, that it, it worked excellent is the only way I can put it. It just, it worked flawlessly cutting the wheat. And so we uh, collected some of the uh, material coming out of the ejection ports of the seed destructor. And we planted some of that material in the greenhouse. Uh, and we're gonna wait and see what kind of weeds we get out of that, if there's any that are making it or any that are surviving. But there was a lot of green material that moved through those mills, through that ready cop system, and we never plugged up, not once. And so we're very, very optimistic in our ability to use it in soybeans. And then we've also got some rice uh, that we're gonna put it in this year. So uh, I feel very optimistic and I think that's gonna be an important tool moving forward in our fight against uh, Palmer pigweed and a lot of other weeds uh, that will hold their seed to a harvest. Uh, another thing I wanted to update you on was uh, Rogue and Rice. Uh, we were able to get a Section 18. Uh, Jason submitted for a Section 18 this year and uh, we've got it out on a few acres and a and, uh, few fields. And so I've followed up with consultants that I know have used it and growers that have used it and in places that I know that uh, put it out. And, you know, really, I think overall, it was a very positive experience with Rogue. This uh, Rogue herbicide uh, has to be applied in water and we have to maintain the flood to get uh, good activity. And anybody that uh, was able to do that, make contact with the water and maintain the flood uh, easily, I think uh, we're very happy with the Rogue. And again, uh, this herbicide is very good on aquatics. It has uh, really cleaned up some fields where we've uh, struggled to kill sedge this year, the ALS resistant uh, rice flat sedge or annual sedge. And so I've got a lot of positive reports on sedge control uh, where we got it in the water and we're able to maintain the flood as well as uh, uh, sprangle top and even larger sprangle top uh, populations in some fields. So again, I think it's a positive update for Rogue. I think it, it does have a fit in Arkansas. Again, it's going to fit the acres though that we can easily flood and maintain a flood of the best because if we lose the water, we lose the activity from that herbicide. But again, it gives us another option uh, and I think it, uh, I think again, it's going to have a good fit on, on some acres in Arkansas. The other herbicide update I was going to provide at this time is on break. Uh, I submitted a section 18 for break herbicide in peanuts. I know a lot of peanut growers uh, got to look at it this year. And for the most part, all the comments I've heard back from them are very positive. I know in our weed control plots, uh, two to three ounces of Valor uh, plus 12 to 16 ounces of break has looked very good. Uh, and, and again, as, as, as a standard, uh, it looks very good or against the standard, I guess I should say. I've also looked at, at Outlook plus break as, as a pre-emerge and again, uh, I think we got a lot more injury this year from Valor, and that really shows up if you got some side-by-side -side plots where you didn't use Valor. Uh, but from a break injury standpoint, uh, I, I got zero calls concerned about the break injury, number one. And in our plots, uh, we just didn't see it this year unless we got up to well above the label rate. And so, uh, again, I think it's positive a year for break. We also applied it to a lot of cotton acres this year. And, and if there was ever a year to use break, for the most part, it's this year with all the frequent rainfall we got 
uh, in the springtime and just continue to reactivate that herbicide and provide the protection that we need. So I think moving forward, uh, break can play a big role for us in, in peanuts as it's uh, starting to play uh, in cotton. And so that's really all I had to talk about today. Uh, again, we're, we're keeping these podcasts to every two weeks, so it'll be two more weeks before the next one's released. Uh, but we want to thank everybody for tuning in and being supportive, supportive of us uh, doing this podcast. We thank you for your comments. Uh, join us next, I guess in two weeks. I wanted to say next week, but join us in two weeks. Uh, as Dr. Jason Norsworthy uh, will be handling the podcast and probably – uh, talking about the current issues at that time, as well as maybe going over a few uh, key results from some trials he had this year. Maybe we can talk him into uh, giving us some updates from that. So thank you for joining us for this episode of the Weeds Are Wild podcast series on Arkansas Row Crops Radio. Arkansas Row Crops Radio is a production of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. For more information, please contact your local county extension agent or visit uaex.uada.edu.